Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here, filling in for Warwick Long, and Warwick will be away from the Country Hour for a couple of months, so taking some holidays and filling in on other programs as well. Coming up on the Country Hour, the latest on the flooding situation around Moolamine, where river levels are finally falling, and around Mildura, where the Murray still hasn't peaked. And locusts are starting to pop up in some areas, and... Funnily enough, that's actually good news for some workers on a property near Barham. Sunday night, I was doing a bit of irrigating and um, could see all these torches walking through a bit of late plant barley I had on top of the hill. And went up and saw what was going on and the, the, the Thai crew was up there uh, walking through the barley trying, with uh, their torches trying to catch all these uh, locusts uh, for dinner. <laughs> and if you're harvesting, how many times have you been bogged? There's a few mates around Underball who've been keeping a tally on what they're calling their bog board. Yeah, yeah, one of the boys, uh, one of my mates, Smellcrubbers, or Dudge, we call him, he uh, set up the uh, bog board. It's a bit of fun, makes a bit of a jovial text every day. Someone says, yep, chuck me on the board and away we go. And what's your bog board tally? You can text in 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, let's get to rural news now with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. Making rural news today. The employment regulator has fined growers and labour hire companies a total of $78,362 for breaching pay slips and record-keeping laws. The Fair Work Ombudsman launched a crackdown on regional businesses a year ago and has so far investigated 237 businesses. Fair Work inspectors issued 31 fines totalling $35,964 in Victoria's Sunraja region, about $22,000 in South Australia's Riverland area and $19,000 across Coffs Harbour and Grafton in New South Wales. Fair Work Ombudsman Sandra Parker says they're targeting regional businesses, particularly on record keeping. It's a priority area for us, agriculture, because we find um, high levels of non-compliance. So we've been targeting particular what we call hotspots. And record keeping is really important. It's really the bedrock of the workplace relations system. So employers need to keep records. And by that I mean they need to be noting what hours people are working, what they're paying them, when they're doing overtime, when they're on leave, and because that's how they can work out whether they're paying properly and that's how the worker can work out if they're being paid properly. They're legally required to provide pay slips to workers. And what we're finding is uh, too many times they're not providing those payslips or they're incorrect payslips. Tasmania's environmental regulator has approved a wind farm in northwest Tasmania, but the turbines won't be able to operate for five months of the year to protect an endangered bird. ASEN Australia has been working for six years on the wind farm project to construct 122 wind turbines on Robins Island, just off Tasmania's northwest coast. The state's Environmental Protection Authority has given the company the green light with a number of conditions, including that it not operate the turbines for five months each year to protect orange-bellied parrots. David Pollington from ASIN says they still don't know the full impact of these conditions will have on the project. There are 33 pages of conditions. Yes, that is an un, 
unexpected condition and we haven't yet really analysed uh, the impacts of that and, and how we would manage that. It kind of caught you by surprise then? Uh, completely, uh, completely unexpected. You've drawn attention to one of very many conditions. Wind turbines uh, are not that lucrative that you could uh, get away with running them half the time. So um, that in its current form would be problematic for us. So we'll need to consider what our options are going forward. In South Australia's Riverland District, the state government's program to remove fruit trees to help fight fruit to help fight fruit fly has started. Perza, along with the local council, door knocked the area last month, offering residents to be part of the program. And in the first round, 38 trees will be replaced with native trees. Loxton resident Thelma Tilly is part of the program. They remove seven trees and they give us a few trees, the ornamentals, but uh, for any other trees with fruiting and that, I've got to put them in myself. The trees that were removed today, what type of trees were they? It was a mixture of trees. Uh, there was a plum tree, uh, an old grapefruit and a nectarine and uh, just, just trees that have been there ever since we've come here and they've just sort of gone rotting at the butt and uh, not bearing fruit, so it was better to have them replaced and it was really good. And still in South Australia, Yolumba Wines in the Barossa Valley is ce celebrating 173 years in the business this month, earning it the title of Australia's oldest family-owned winery. Chairman of Hillsmith Family Wine Estate at Yolumba, Robert Hillsmith, says they're proud of their achievement. You know, the fact that we've had one family running our winery for that long is, is an achievement. It's, some would say, a miracle, but one we, uh, we enjoy and we're proud of. So our history follows the history of the, the whole Australian wine history, and, uh, and that is, you know, obviously in the early years of colonising, Australia was largely, in wine terms, drinkers of sweeter, fortified wines that they called sherry and port and variations of the same. So that, that, that really persisted for, oh, let's say, well over 100 years, even into the 1950s here. So in that time, really, what the history shows since then is that post-war migration, I think, aligning our consumption patterns with the rest of the world, it sort of brought us into line with, uh, I suppose, table wine being and sparkling wine being the majority of wine that's consumed now. And that's Rural News for this Friday. Thanks, Emma. Hemmerfield there with Rural News. Well, on the text line, Alex, Alex is harvesting canola, still at Finlay. G'day, Angus. One head of bogged once, the other not bogged yet at all. Pretty good run, Alex. Alex is also seeing a few locusts, as is Macca at Dalesford. Macca says, Angus, I noticed a couple of locusts in my backyard this week. Uh, another texter says, might have to get the bog board going here. Had one really bad day where one bog tractor turned into five and it's just cut off, so I'm not sure if it was... The tractor bogged five times or five different bog machines, but keep texting in 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, Murray River flooding around Mildura still hasn't reached its peak. In Victoria and New South Wales, that means farmland is getting flooded and those who have levee banks are hoping they will hold. Kelly Hollingworth reports. 
Three quarters of Roberto Fuoco's Nichols Point table grape property is flood affected. In some places on the 11 hectare property, the water is one and a half metres deep. So to check on the vines, he needs to go for a paddle in his kayak. Mr Fuoco estimates the crop losses and rebuild of the vineyard will cost millions of dollars. But he isn't the only table grape grower battling with flood water, as Jenny Treby, the industry development manager with the Australian Table Grape Association, explains. At the moment, we know of two different groups of growers. Uh, one that have levies, built levies, so um, they're going to be worry, worrying for a long time if they break or not. Uh, and then there is a smaller number of growers uh, that we are aware of that are fully inundated by now, or like this, up to the hilt. What kind of impact does flood inundation have on the growth and development of table grapes? Uh, look, we, we don't know as yet. Um, I think most of the stuff that has been done in the past was in grapevines or for vines that were up to six weeks only. But um, this is most probably going for a lot longer. But um, these guys will have to make hard decisions and, and the business decisions and look at the risk management and try to get the butt fruitfulness going that um, will stand them in good stead next year. Is it safe to say that these crops that have got water in them now will largely be written off this harvest? Most probably, yes. That must be very stressful for the affected growers. What kind of help is available? Well, look, it is very stressful. Help for producers at this point in time is um, from the government, so there's a recovery grant available and we are working together with Agriculture Victoria and with the Rural Financial Services in New South Wales and in Victoria to streamline it and to make it as easy as possible for growers or producers to access them. And it's just really raising awareness for the growers that they need to have documentation ready to go, photos possibly of the inundation, you know, bills that they paid so far for, for trying to save their crop and even make a list of what they might need to do after the flood has receded. So it's a bit of a thought process now that will stand them in really good stead in the future. You've been involved in horticulture in this region for a really long time. Have you seen properties affected like this by flooding before? I've only been here since 89, so I haven't seen a real big flood. 2011, 12, I think, after the big rain event where people went out and harvested by boat, but that was dried fruit. Totally different um, scenario because it was, it was late in the season. This is ongoing. They will have problems uh, because they can't get in with any sprays, any protective sprays or anything. So it is, you can't compare apples with pears. That was Jenny Treby, the Industry Development Manager with the Australian Table Grape Association. And just a bit further downstream on the Murray is John Waters' citrus property. The Kerwa resident told Jennifer Douglas the road is underwater and he's using a boat to access his home and farm. I've got about 20 acres of citrus growing um, on the property and uh, it's inundated probably um, half that which actually has gone underwater and uh, the other half is probably just water through it but not, not inundated depending on the size of the trees. But uh, it's, it's not, not a good result. How is that going to affect your, your farm business, your citrus harvest? Well, well, it's going to affect in the sense that I can't even do anything on the property at the moment because there's water through everything. So if there's any disease control or anything like that needs to be done, it can't be done unless you've brought an aerial sprayer, which is pretty much... Uh, 
off, off, the, off, the, off the mark, yeah. And how long do you anticipate the floods will be affecting your property for? Oh, nobody knows. All I know is that in past experience, when the floods come up here, they stay up for a long time, so it'll be months, I'd say, before I can get back on it again. How extensive do you think the damage is going to be? Oh, it's, it's too hard to tell you, Jen. It's, it's um, depending on, on circumstances, it depends on the weather. If it rains more, it's, gonna, it's going to stay up longer. Uh, but hopefully, we're near a peak of the river now, hopefully, and uh, it may not drop much for a start, but hopefully it will start to drop. That was Kerwa citrus grower John Waters speaking with Jennifer Douglas. Well, on, uh, later in the program, you'll hear from a few mates up at Underball who've started up what they're calling a bog board, and that's basically just a tally board of how many times they've been bogged trying to harvest. And I'd like to hear, too, what your bog board tally might be. Text in 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. GrainCorp is assuring farmers who use its receival site at Yalta near Mildura that it will remain open. Big Emergency issued an advice message for the area because a flood levy was compromised on Wednesday night. GrainCorp Senior Manager of National Operations, Jason Shanley, has this update. The levy that has been breached is actually a, a levy on a neighbouring property to us. We've actually been preparing for this for three to four weeks now. Um, we've We've raised our own levy at the site. Um, we've worked with council and emergency services um, and particularly with local growers as well uh, to put plans in place, uh, which we actually enacted last night. So that was uh, extending the levy across the Meridian Highway. Um, and at the moment, that uh, that levy is, is holding well. Um, I would stress from a... From a site perspective, we we removed all grain from from that uh, from the bunkers uh, that are in that affected area uh, a, a few weeks ago now. So the site is empty of grain, um, and what we're doing is really uh, this is all about uh, once the waters recede, um, ensuring that the local growers can access um, that storage facility as soon as possible. So if we can keep the water out, um, once those roads open, we'll be able to get them back in there straight away. Can growers deliver to the Yelta? site at the moment? Yes, absolutely. So the, uh, there is access to the site from the south um, and so that, that essentially gets them access to the, the storage facility on the higher side of the roads um, and yes, we're, we're actually receiving grain there today so there is still access right now. Is it going to impact the volume of grain you're able to receive this season? Hopefully the waters recede fairly quickly. Um, and look, we, we do have a, a you know fairly significant uh, storage up on the the top half of the site, and that will keep us going um, until we hit that point where we can actually get access to the bottom half of the site again. So certainly, plenty of room there right now. You've already got growers travelling long distances, particularly those that are in southern New South Wales, to use the receival site at Yelta. If that is required to be shut at any stage um, for them to continue using a grain corp site it's going to put more pressure on your car warp receival site are you starting to look at those contingency plans as well we've been planning for that particularly as part of our segregation planning sessions we we look at that daily but um, look at this stage we we don't foresee losing access to yelta at this point um but 
you know, we will continue to monitor the conditions and certainly if we need to do something, we've, we've definitely got uh, plan B and C and D in place. There's definitely a lot of headers in Victorian paddocks at the moment. How much grain is flowing into your sites? We actually uh, ticked over a million tonnes into our Victorian network this morning. So, um, yeah, look, we've seen <clears throat> probably over the last six days a, a massive uptake in or a massive lift in the numbers, uh, you know, the, the daily numbers that we're seeing, um, generally ranging from 85k a day up to over 100k a day. So uh, definitely hitting their straps and, um, and you know, seeing good tonnes coming in right across uh, each of the, all, all the regions in Victoria. The quality seems to be a bit mixed depending on the farmer that you talk to. Are you seeing that as well? It is widespread in terms of what's out there. But look, at this point, where up until this point, it's been majority canola and barley coming off. We're just sort of starting to get into wheat now. Um, and at this point, I'd say majority of what we're seeing in the wheat um, is actually falling into milling grade. So whilst there is a, a fair spread, um, you know, all the way down to SFW, um, we are seeing majority land in those milling categories, um, which is good. Is there much crop that you're rejecting because it doesn't meet moisture or weight levels? Given that we're um, over a million tonnes, I'd, I'd say there's very little that we're rejecting on the basis of uh, moisture. I think you tend to, particularly as it starts to heat up and, you you know, it, it has been, it has been a, a very slow start to harvest them. Um, those cooler days, uh, you know, it, it can be difficult to get the moisture down. But um, once it heats up, we start to see less of those issues. And, look, we, we just continue... Um, you know, the grain that we take into our system, it's, it's as per um, GTA standards and that's what our customers expect, um, you know, when we out turn the grain to them. So, um, yeah, look, I, I don't foresee there being too many issues there now that things are starting to heat up. That was Grain Corp Senior Manager of National Operations, Jason Shanley, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. On the text line, Mel from Allendale. Got a feel for you, Mel. Mel says, I've been bogged 26 times so far trying to harvest my beans. Hmm, that's not good, Mel. We are talking about your bog board tally on the Country Hour today. Let us know how you're getting on 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Well, a sudden rise in the Edward River at Moulamine this week created plenty of anxiety after locals had thought the worst was behind them. And while the river has again started to fall, it remains above the highest level on record. China Gibson, who farms on the Billabong Creek just north of Moulamine, explains what caused the river rise. Yeah, I got a phone call off a mate. It went up uh, 10 millimetres in uh, a matter of three or four hours, and he was a bit concerned. Uh, I did a bit of oh, just one phone call. Uh, the only thing could happen, I said, was they've blocked the railway because the railway line blew out a few days earlier, which relieved Moolamine a bit, but put pressure on several houses downstream of Moolamine coming in the back door, and they'd, they'd finally worked a way to block it off because there was a uh, big hole in the in the railway, the old railway line, and they blocked it, which uh, put the... Put the river back up 27 millimetres by 2 o'clock in the morning. The same mate told me because he couldn't sleep. His house is still in danger before it dropped again. Right, so that's that's all it took, just, yeah, plugging that, that breach and then the river came up. Yeah, there's no win without a wham. You help someone out, like several houses out, and the water's got to go somewhere. So it went back, instead of bypassing our town, went back through town. It's 27 millimetres of much, but it is when, you, when you've had water against your back door for a month and a half like this fella. And I imagine that 
that caused a lot of stress for people who'd, who'd hoped that the, the peak was behind them. Especially when they didn't know what was happening because um, they, just, they just plugged this hole, like doing the right thing. It needed to be done. They realised next day and it just rose so quick and they didn't know whether it was going to go up 27 mil or, or 27 centimetres. Like, uh, they were just very concerned because it's uh, when, when the bank's seeping, the bank's weeping and they've got flood fatigue. They just, they're yeah, very concerned. China, a lot of people through the Riverina and other areas talking about just how extraordinary it is where the water's gone this time. Uh, has it surprised you and, and how important is it to be taking note, whether it's written note or, or mental note or, or, or observations of, of just what's happened so that, you, that people know for next time? Oh, very important because we're the old fellas now. We're the old fellas that we used to they used to talk about 56 to us young folks. And us old fellas now, we're talking about 22. And we need to know where it got to, what trees, the mark on the tree, which banks held it up, which banks have to be let go because there's banks there that maybe should have been cut, maybe shouldn't have been cut. And I was talking to a mate the other day, and like I call it my water going out the back of my place. It's given him a hell of a time out in his place. It just keeps going. He, he can't believe the high ground it's getting across. It's going around the back of Millamoon. We, we cut banks there over a month ago now to bypass water, just to get rid of the water. But it's got to go somewhere now. It's going through his property. It's filled three dry lakes, this water, and it's just inundated thousands of acres. And it's still, it'll keep going for three weeks, that water. It's its own separate little flood. Everyone can just mark on the trees. Remember where it got to. Mark on the road. Mark on your house, if your house is under. We need reference points for the future. And you've actually been nailing cattle tags to trees as, as markers? Yeah, a few different spots, just just so I remember. Uh, every pump side, I put a nail on a tree, just take screw cattle tags in with, with 22, not 2022 written on them. I'll go back later and I'll put up permanent ones. I'll make up some parks, some metal parks. I just hammer them into the trees so they're there for... I'm only around for another 20 years. I'll be too silly, old and silly by then. They want to listen to me anyway. Just reference points for the future. We may not own this property forever. So the next owners will, will know where it got to. China talking about the impact that all of this water is having on the road and bridge network. Uh, you had a mate of yours who, who got into strife this week? Yeah, it's, it's give me a phone call just on dark, like he's, he is, he works long hours, come across what we know as the Murga Bridge. A small bridge across the Billabong Creek, about oh, 20 k's up from Ullamine, just on the back road, and he, he was coming home from shifting sheep and just stopped at the bridge. The water is over the bridge, and the actual road in front of the bridge started washing out. And as he was talking to me, he goes, whoop, whoop, hang on, whoop, I'll call you back, and disappeared. The, uh, he grabbed the rail, the road collapsed under him. And luckily he's a young, younger than me and a lot fitter than me. He grabbed the rail and stopped him from getting washed down the creek. So anything can happen. <laughs> I didn't know whether to drive out there or to call someone or what to do when he disappeared, but he called me back five minutes later and he just uh, yeah, grabbed the rail to keep himself from disappearing in the floodwater. Right, so what had, had he got out of his vehicle to just step it out? Yeah, he just got out to have a look. Like, to, he was trying to warn, he just uh, rang me to, we had to do something to start warning people, get some signs up. And, uh, yeah, the, the road collapsed under him, he was standing on it, and it actually let go. So he, he probably saved someone else's life by almost getting in trouble himself. If someone had driven into that that night without the... the people just still drive through floodwater out there. It's the only way you can get to places. It's, um, every road's cut off in and out of Moolamoon. I think the uh, Pretty Pine Denny Road's finally got no water under over it, but every road, every other road has. And someone could have driven into it that night or next morning with, without his help. So he's done a, done the world of good. He's 
He's uh, done his good service for the week. China, uh, in your local Moolamine notes for this week, you you also write that uh, you're not out of the woods yet. All the catchments are full. Anything could happen. Mother Nature hasn't got a memory, and just because it's been so wet doesn't mean it'll be dry next year. No, no. Like, even if we have a freak summer storm up in those mountains, our weirs are all still at 100%. We have no control. This is natural creeks. This is what they like before a white man took control of them. There's no control anymore. If if we get a freak storm, look out, we could be in <laughs> we could be in trouble again. And next year they're going to stay full, very full. And if we have an average to above average year next year, this could be 55, 56 is still to come. We hope not. We hope we have a bloody drought. I've never wished for a drought, but just to ease the pressure on everyone for 12 months. And and while you've got all of this going on, dealing with flooding, flooded roads, and, and everything else. I suppose, for the likes of yourself, life goes on. You've still got sheep that need to be crutched. I think you've got shearers there today, crutching, crutching lambs. Yeah, we're, we're, everything else is shorn, but the ewe lambs, they're getting crutched today. We're putting 1,500 through the shed. No, that'll be good, because the blowflies are just starting to move in on the uh, chemical must have worn off on their, on their breach. So we're getting a few flies. And like the farmers are still trying to harvest, like the blokes the other side, they're, they're trying to harvest, getting bog like that at Horsham and Fawn Hill and everywhere else. Up north, Hilston, getting bogged seven times a day at Hilston. And uh, farmers have still got to feed stock, look after stock, check their ice water and harvest and just live life in general. That was China Gibson who farms on the Billabong Creek north of Moolamine. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, it's just gone 12.30, so let's get to news headlines with 3O Davis. Good afternoon, Angus. Making news around regional Victoria, a 45-year-old man will be fined after he today pleaded guilty to making threats to kill and assault. The county court sitting in Ballarat heard in 2018 the man threatened the life of his partner of 18 years while holding a hammer over his head. Later the same night, he again threatened the woman and told her to lie to police who were performing a welfare check. Both prosecution and defence told the court a fine was the most appropriate punishment. The amount will be determined next week. Members of the Manufacturing Industry Union have moved a no-confidence motion against Opal, the operator of Latrobe Valley's paper mill. CFMMEU Secretary Michael O'Connor says the mill is one of the Valley's largest employers and 220 of its workers are under threat of being indefinitely stood down or made redundant. Opal has blamed a shortage of timber from its supplier Vic Forests for the uncertainty but says it's investigating alternative supplies. Several mourners from Uncle Archie Roach's funeral procession have been issued red light camera fines. In a statement, police said they have reviewed three of the fines at the request of drivers, but refused to overturn them due to the seriousness of the offence. Police claims they offered funeral organisers assistance for the cortege's movement through Melbourne, but were declined. And Ross River virus and Barmer forest virus have been detected in mosquitoes in the Campaspe, Horsham and Loddon local government areas. Symptoms include headache, fever, chills, rash, joint pain and stiffness, muscle pain and fatigue. The Department of Health says the most effective way to reduce risk of mosquito-borne diseases is to avoid mosquito bites altogether and remove breeding sites around your home. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Rio. Rio Davis there with news headlines. Well, let's head off to the Bureau now where Senior Forecaster Simon Timkey is on duty. Good afternoon, Simon. G'day, Angus. 
Simon, I'm based in Horsham. I just had a look at our temperature this morning. Minimum of 3.6 overnight, uh, 9th of December. Pretty cold for this time of year. Yeah, it, it sure is. Um, but we do have some warmer weather on the way over the weekend. But for today, staying generally in a south to southeasterly airstream, which is bringing some cooler air over the state. So most districts seeing temperatures um, below average today. Um, and uh, uh, as far as any showers go, mostly confined to uh, to the Gippsland districts today where there are a, a few showers showing up on the radar, but, but generally not expecting any, uh, any significant totals in the um, few hours since 9am this morning. We've had a few spots that have picked up to about sort of two or three millimetres or so over East Gippsland, but, but generally the rest of the state dry today, but there is a bit of cloud, a bit of cloud south of the ranges in that south east, south to southeasterly airstream, further to the west, bit of high cloud pushing across from the, uh, um, from the west. Uh, but tomorrow we'll see a different sort of story. The, the high-pressure system currently centred west of Tasmania will move to a position east of Tasmania tomorrow, and that'll turn our winds around northeast to, to northerly, bring some warmer air down from the north, and I think we'll see plenty of sunshine, particularly during the morning, maybe a bit of patchy cloud developing during the afternoon. But, but dry conditions right across the, uh, the state for Saturday. Might be a little bit cold again to start off with. We'll see some, some lowish sort of temperatures to start off with again with the, the clear skies to start off with. But, uh, but temperatures certainly uh, a, a good few degrees higher than those of today. So uh, uh, starting to feel a little bit more like summer again, but it won't be lasting too long. We've got another change moving across western and central parts on, uh, on Sunday. So we'll see that, that cloud thicken up on Sunday morning, see some showers develop out over western districts during Sunday morning, then extend eastwards during the day. Uh, chance of seeing some uh, um, windier conditions, both ahead of and behind the change on Sunday. So we will see some some elevated fire dangers. Uh, just getting to high fire danger in the Mallee and the Wimmera uh, districts, both on Sunday and Monday. So ahead of and behind the change with those stronger winds. Um, and also on Sunday, chance of seeing some, some isolated thunderstorms around the place too, um, mostly during during the afternoon and evening and possible over, over most districts on Sunday too. So behind that change again, we'll see a cooler burst of air come through with those southwesterly winds. So through um, next week, we stay in that southwesterly airstream with a couple of embedded cold fronts in there uh, uh, on a couple of days, which will keep conditions, again, below average temperature-wise through the week. Um, and plenty of showers around, particularly on and south of the ranges. Um, Monday looks like the wettest day, I think, particularly over um, the eastern districts and about the, the, the higher ground in particular. Um, and with these cold bursts of air, could see a, a little bit of snow again about the highest peaks uh, through next week as well. Um, a chance of thunderstorms over eastern districts on Monday near southern coasts, uh, central and western coasts, sorry, on uh, Tuesday, and then showers continuing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday on and south of the ranges, but gradually easing late in the week. But certainly, uh, like this week, well below average uh, maximum temperatures and feeling a, a, a little bit wintry again. So uh, a brief taste of summer over the weekend, but uh, not very long-lasting, Angus. Mm, so the wettest day on Monday, Simon, any, any possible... Figures? 
Yeah, look, at, at this stage, uh, 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 as I said, I think it'll be the eastern districts that will be um, the wettest. Um, and, and generally for that day, um, I think we'll, we'll be a chance of seeing some falls of 20 to 40 millimetres about the eastern ranges. And, you know, with uh, thunderstorms or heavier showers, uh, a chance there could be the odd spot pick up a little bit more than that. Sort of more generally over eastern districts, 10 to 20 millimetres, over western parts, more like two to ten millimetres. So potential for some some significant falls over those eastern hills in particular. Um, so it could get a, a little bit wet on that day, uh, especially Angus. Okay, so possibility, yeah, of substantial rain in some of the the river catchments then. Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, hydrologists are, are keeping a pretty close eye on that. Obviously, a lot of the catchments are pretty wet still. So um, uh, uh, hydrologists watching that uh, very closely. Hmm, and everyone in the river community is hoping that they don't get another flush down the river, I'm sure. Yeah, it's not, not really what uh, anyone is wanting at, uh, at this point in time, is it? No, that's right, Simon. And just on how cold it is, I mean, I've, I've just brought up the Horsham forecast because that's where I happen to be based. And Monday to Thursday next week, a top of 19 every day, mid-December. I mean, can you recall a period like this, such such a cold start to summer? Oh, look, it's it's not unusual to get some cold days, you know, when we get a decent cold front push through, but it, it just seems to have been sustained for, for sort of longer periods this time, doesn't it? This week we've had a, a number of colder days and, and next week is, uh, is, is looking the same where, um, you know, we've had maximum temperatures sort of uh, a, a good sort of 8 to 12 degrees below average this week and through um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday even next week looks like similar sort of uh, um, uh, temperatures that well that many degrees below average again so it is uh, a, a little bit unusual to, to be sustained for, for so long and at the same time people probably hearing headlines of heatwave condi- conditions in in northern Australia yeah that's right fairly large areas across the north of, uh, of the country where they are experiencing heatwave conditions. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite remarkable to, to be sitting in Victoria having, uh, having such cold conditions for this time of year and, uh, and hearing about those heatwave conditions across the north for a fairly sustained period of time as well. It uh, doesn't really add up sometimes, does it? Strange, strange. Thanks, Simon. Thanks a lot, Angus. Simon Timkey there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Remember the text line, 0467842722. And uh, yes, quite a few texts there with people texting in on how many times they've been bogged this harvest. Mel from Allendale, clearly in the lead there, 26 times he's been bogged. And you'll hear shortly from the people who, a group of farmers up in the Mallee who did start up uh, their bog board, each texting each other when they do get bogged. Although they hadn't been bogged 26 times, I must say, Mel. 0467 842 Well, there are a few locusts starting to get around in some areas. And for one vegetable grower at Barham, that's actually been good news for his international workers who help themselves to a feed. Locusts or grasshoppers are popular snacks foods in Thailand where Wayne Shields of Peninsula Fresh Organics has recruited some of his workers from. He says his workers went on a late-night locust-catching expedition in his barley crop. 
Yeah, they uh, blew in on the uh, north wind on uh, Sunday uh, in sort of decent sort of numbers, a fair few around actually. Oh, I just took a bit of notice of them, but then on uh, Sunday night I was doing a bit of irrigating and um, could see all these torches walking through a bit of late plant barley I had on top of the hill. And went up and saw what was going on and the, the, the Thai crew was up there uh, walking through the barley trying, with uh, their torches trying to catch all these uh, locusts uh, for dinner. Um, I said I'd try them one day, but I haven't got around to it yet. Rightio, Wayne. So your work is from Thailand, where I'm, I'm assuming it's a, it's a standard sort of cuisine. It must be, but my Indonesian guys, they're not having a bar of it. They're not touching it. They're not happy about it at all. But I've seen those guys eat some strange things, though. But, uh, yeah, they're not going to have a go at the, the grasshoppers, but the Thais reckon it's great. And and free food, too. Yeah. Well, they've, they've made a bit of an effort to come back into to the farm to, to get them at night, so they're obviously something to it. So you you are prepared to have a crack at them? Yeah, I'll have a go at them. I just uh, got to, they've got to go out and catch a few more because they knocked off that lot over that night straight away without without me getting a go at it. Did you talk to them about how they how they prepare them? Uh, just cook it up, cook it up. They said so. We'll see what that means. Yeah. So, are you worried about them, Wayne? Do you, are they going to cause problems for you if numbers do build up? No. Uh, well, I'm not too concerned. I've certainly got. A bit of green pick, having grown a bit of lettuce up here at the moment and a few other things. Um, but they could, if the numbers get up to what I saw in 2004, if they get up to that, that could cause a few issues. But it's also, I also remember growing the best crop of onions through a locust plague in Hilston. The locusts moved into the onions and they ate every bit of every weed. They ate every little bit of brown on the onions. They wouldn't touch anything that was green. I was... Um, with the acid from the onions in it and um, the best-looking crop of onions I've ever grown. So I really don't know what it means yet, but numbers aren't that big, though. We'll see what it looks like in a few months' time, I suppose. And and on that point, we have spoken with the Australian Plague Locust Commission and, and they've said there's a few sort of localised outbreaks of them, but big numbers not expected, although those numbers are expected to build up in months to come, but but not get to any particularly problematic level, so... It sounds like you, you should be fairly right. Yeah, it should be right. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of water around us at the moment, so I'd say most blue in and probably drowned, actually, so who knows? You mentioned 2004, Wayne. Locusts were bad then. Yeah, yeah, shocking. Couldn't ride a motorbike without a face shield on. Hmm, let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned all of that water around, Wayne. Has your barren property been, been affected by the flood water? Oh, uh, look, yes and no, you know, the mozzies are really bad. They've settled down a little bit too now. Access has been sort of interesting. We've had to plan our routes as, you know, we've been left with only one option to get into town at some point. That's opened up again, so that's OK. Um, personally, as a veggie grower, my biggest issue was the amount of rain we had in October. You know, we had over 300 mil on the farm on a sand hill, which, you know, you don't get bogged on a sand hill, but it certainly takes all your nutrition away and... We lost quite a bit of um, cropping due to that, but um, we're going to recover pretty quick from it. But uh, I might have a chat to the bank manager for a <laughs> short-term help for a while, but anyway, that's farming. Also, on the on the uh, wet and cold conditions we've had, I mean, maybe good for some veggies, but not good for others. Uh, how's that affected growth? Uh, generally speaking, the, the whole industry is sort of lagging a lot, struggling a bit, but... Um, Everyone talked about it pushing prices up. That certainly hasn't happened. Um, there's, there's enough production around, but, um, yeah, everyone everyone's just done it hard for a while. But, you know, 
that's just the, just the weather. You can't change it. The sunshine's been down, the temperature's been down, the amount of water laying around has been problematic. But um, I think that's all behind us now. It's going to be a bit cooler by the looks of it, but generally speaking, we're away again. And in terms of, of pricing, I mean, cost of living, inflation, you walk around the supermarket and the price of a lot of things has, has gone up quite a lot, even just the past 12 months, but that hasn't translated to growers? Oh, look, you can have a few bursts here and there, but generally speaking, no, our, our prices have gone up significantly. There's, I mean, that's showing up with the amount of growers around, you know, a lot of growers have put, a, put the queue in the rack this year, they've just given up on it, um, I don't blame them. I'm in a pretty good position with what I do and where I sell my produce, and it's still tough for me. Yeah, just everything's going up in every direction. There's constraints on this, constraints on that. People want to be paid up front, but nobody wants to pay you, but um, sign of the times, I suppose. That was Wayne Shields from Peninsula Fresh Organics, which is based on the Mornings of Peninsula and also at Barham, where Wayne's Thai workers help themselves to a feed of locusts. On the text line, another text on our bog board. How many times have you been bogged so far this harvest? Uh, obviously, the more it is, is not better, but I guess it makes a good story, doesn't it? And Duggo's probably got a good story. Duggo thinks around 20 times. Also a text on just how cold this start to summer has been. This text, Steve says, in 2001 or maybe 2002, we had the family Christmas lunch at my brother's place in Upper Pakenham. He just finished his in-ground pool and a three-degree cold front hit with horizontal rain and hail. Guessing you stayed out of the pool then, Steve. 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. It's been a few years since Australian women in agriculture have been able to meet in a room. But tonight, women in ag from around the country will get together for dinner. The Victorian event is happening in Euroa this evening. One of the guest speakers will be Curran Moroni, a fourth-generation dairy farmer from the Midder Valley, who also runs a genetics business and is a member of various boards. Karen recently told her story in a book called Voice of Impact and what led her to return back to the family farm and what also led her to step up into higher roles. She says the perception of women in agriculture is changing. However, there's still a way to go. The change is very slow and as I've seen it, it's over generations. So from when I started in this industry, what I saw was particularly when... Uh, I entered boardrooms. It's mainly male-dominated, but the, the pendulum is slowly changing as more and more people or more women are actually are stepping forward to take up the challenge and, and leadership roles in our industry. And I believe that having worked in, uh, on some diverse boards, that uh, male and female representation or to have balance is really important in the boardroom because it gives balance to everything. Um, so, you know, you don't just have that one view. Women actually have a, a quite a different view to the, to the males um, and it adds that diversity that's very much needed. I do see that it's still, uh, there's still not enough women um, entering this area where they can actually help mould and shape our industry and I'd love to see more women 
um, entering the boardroom in particular. Uh, you'll see a lot of women that are obviously very involved and integral to their local communities, but they're not stepping out of the local area to more national or state organisational uh, to be represented at that higher level. Um, and it is changing, but it is still very slow. What is it that holds women back, do you think, from stepping up into those higher positions? Uh, I often see it as being women placing barriers on themselves. My experience has been that other people will always put barriers in front of you. You will always have other people telling you why you can't do something. I've learned to dismiss that over the years, um, and that only comes with strong self-belief, um, usually through experiences. And... I believe it's the barriers that women place in their own head that actually stop them from achieving their best life. So it's it's listening to what other people are saying and then you entrench that in, in how you're feeling. Oh, I'm not good enough. I don't have a, a um, good enough education. Oh, I can't public speak. So they're all negative that we place on ourselves and build in our own minds. And it's really important for women to stop doing that to themselves. Um, because once you do that and remove those barriers, it's amazing where life can take you. And it's having self-belief. As someone who has had a long career in the industry and is, yeah, like you said, has stepped out of that mental barrier and stepped up into other roles and higher roles, was there someone who came before you who sort of helped you push you in that direction or steer you in that direction and, and gain that confidence? I think this part's integral to my own personal story. So when I was growing up, I never thought that I was going to be on a dairy farm and that my life would revolve around cows. It was actually my father's death that changed everything for me. So he had a dream and he gave that dream to me. So his dream was that he had this fledgling um, embryonic uh, artificial insemination business that was just starting to take off and he was actually the founding person who established or started the establishment of what is known as the Aussie Red Breed today um, and it was he died way too early for him to realise his dream but he gave his dream to me and it was whether I was going to step up and do that. And it was incredibly hard for me at that time because I was a new mum. I'd just come home to join the family farming partnership. And all of a sudden, I found myself a director of a company, a director of a livable syndicate, the publisher of a magazine, and dealing with overseas companies who did not know me and I didn't know them. Now, that in itself was a huge challenge. And it was whether I was going to say yes and embark on that journey or whether I was going to say no. Happily, I said yes. That was Cara Maroney, Mitter Valley Dairy Farmer, speaking with Annie Brown. Well, let's get to the bog board now, because each time underbull farmer Paul Wisniewski gets bogged this harvest, there's one thing he has to do before he goes about hooking up the snatch strap. That's sending a text to a group of mates who are part of the district's bog board keeping tally of how many times they've been bogged. It's a way of making light of what is an unusual challenge for Mallee farmers who aren't used to getting bogged at all, let alone time after time. I had a chat with Paul about who's leading their bog board. 
Yeah, yeah, one of the boys, uh, one of my mates, Mel Crothers, or Dudsy calling me, uh, set up the old bog board. So um, there's four of us in on it at the moment. Um, yeah, there's a few of us got a couple on the on the tally board already, and Mel's hit the score. So, yeah, it's a bit of fun, makes a bit of a jovial text every day. Someone says, yep, chuck me on the board, and away we go. Okay, so talk me through how the board looks at the moment. Who's who's leading the way? Uh, yes, uh, one of your neighbours, Andrew Willsmore. He's uh, on 10 at the moment. He's on 10, I'm on 7. Matty Brown, he's just started, he's on 1. And Mel Crothers has yet to, uh, yeah, to score yet. He's on 0, so I'm not sure. I, I reckon if he actually went down, not bold, I don't think he'd actually ever admit to it anyway. So um, he might stay 0 all year. We're not sure, we'll have to wait and see. Well, I was going to say, a bit rich if he's the one who came up with the, the bog board and yet he's, he's not even featured on it. <laughs> That's right. I know he's a bit of a cheeky bugger, but uh, we'll find out if it, uh, everything always comes there, was it? It rises to the surface. So, yeah, the truth never gets too far away. So we'll, we'll find out throughout the year, around the fire, around a beer somewhere. And, Paul, just, I suppose, I mean, other people, we had a chat with John Bennett on the Country Hour. They've got a, a group doing a similar thing. Uh, Patchy Pubs running a, a best harvest stuff up competition. So, probably just just trying to inject a bit of humour into what's what's not a great situation. Yeah, that's right, mate. Yeah, just something a bit jovial. Like you, you send your photos and you go, yep, down again, and then get the snatch trap out or the black snake, and yeah, yeah, half an hour later you're normally out. Yeah, they haven't been too sinister as yet, which has been good. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So, yeah, we're actually probably down about 30 minutes, I reckon. Tell me, I'll chase a bin and put the tractor on the snatch trap, back of the header, and away we go. So, not too bad. And I wanted to ask about that. You have been managing to, to get out all right, because if you look on Facebook and social media, there are some absolute horror stories of headers just bogged unbelievably badly, but, but that hasn't happened to you to this point? No, no, not to this point. Soon as it, you feel it go down, just pull up and then, yeah, just call chase wind driver over and we see if we can empty the box out, get it as light as you can and then, yeah, just set up for the, for the snatch trap and away we go because I think the more you spin them, the deeper they get. As soon as they get belly bogged, it becomes hard work. So probably just take your time and don't panic and just, yeah, it'll come out. I had a neighbour actually, Sammy Crow, he bogged one probably as bad as I've ever seen actually. Like, yeah, back right end wheel was nearly off the ground and, I think they had to get tow truck down from Majura. So there's a few stressful days there for the Crow boys, I'd say. And is that a worry when, if you do get that badly bogged and you've got to apply a massive amount of force to get unbogged, you know, possibly doing a bit of bit of damage to the machine? Oh, that that's the uh, uh, ultimate risk, I suppose, for sure. Uh, well, that's what, as soon as it goes down, if it doesn't come out, no, you definitely got to get on the shovel. You've got to take the pressure off the drive wheels and anywhere that's sort of sunk or any pressure, you know, weight of the machine on in the mud. So, yeah, definitely has got to be a bit of manual labour there. Well, they actually got a uh, little excavator from a bloke at Maribel to come down and dig it out. It was that bad. So, you know, sticking tyres under it and everything. So they got it out eventually. But, yeah, it was a bit of a task. But, yeah, you just got to take your time and take as much pressure off the drag as you can. And apart from your, your seven incidents of getting bogged, Paul, how is harvest going generally? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well, we finished barley uh, Sunday, so that's been good. Happy enough with the yields. Uh, quality was a bit up and down, but uh, bar two to bar bar one, um, no malts. <laughs> well, the beer will be a bit darker in colour this year, I'd imagine, when the malts 
put a bit of that through the system. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I'm just starting on weights. And happy there enough there too. Got ASW specs at this stage, so program's a bit low, but hopefully as we get on to some heavier ground, program might jump up a bit. But yeah, with the wet wet spring, fair chance it's going to be fairly leached out. So otherwise, very happy. Okay, so probably not, not the best quality, but you're more than compensating for that with your yields? Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Uh, the barley was a bit over three and a half tonne and the wheat's just going under three at the moment. So hopefully we can hold somewhere around there or better and uh, as we go, we'll see what happens. And then we've got yeah, lupins and lentils to get off as well at some stage. So I've got a contractor coming in for the lentils hopefully into the wheat. Get that job down the road and have to probably store them by the sounds of it with quality. There's wrinkle and whatever else going around in them. So I'm not sure it's the first year of growing lentils in this scale. So we'll have to sort of wait and see. And have you got a rough end date where you might think you might wrap up harvest? Oh, you never actually, yeah. As a farmer, you never put a line in the sand. But uh, hopefully just before Christmas, we'll get the, yeah, everything tidied up, hopefully, at this stage. We just, yeah, the weather's been, it's turned on its head. Like, couldn't get going for the first. Well, I think we started on the, well, the 9th of November it was, and we couldn't get going for, you know, nearly two weeks. And then, well, since then, it's sort of been just every day. You fire the header up by 9.30, 10 o'clock. Well, you go. So it's been good. That was underwall farmer Paul Wisniewski, who, along with his mates, created the bog board. And Mark has got a contribution to the bog board on the text line. Mark's at Annuello, four headers to start with, then three, now two. Bogged at least 20 times, two required digging out. Last bogged yesterday on the side of a sandhill. Dave at Lake Tyres with a reminder, careful with that snatch strap. If they let go... They can cause serious injuries. Thanks for that, Dave. Time to head to the Hamilton Sheep Market now with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Agents showed at 8,268 sheep in Hamilton today, an increase of 6,248. This week, the quality was good, being principally well-finished crossbred ewes, and a small number of merino ewes and weathers with all weights and grades on offer. All the regular buyers were present and fully active, resulting in a market that was stronger by $15 per head, and more so for the heavier end. Heavy crossbred ewes sold at $125 per head, well-finished merino weathers to $125, merino ewes to $105, light to medium sheep to average between $360 and $400 cents, and good merino mutton averaging between $380 and $420. Uh, Hoggets made to $130 and rams made to $60. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Not a bad result there. A large yarding up by 6,000 head and $15 a head stronger. Well, that's just about it for the Country Hour today, and thanks for all your texts, particularly contributions to the bog board. Bit of a way of injecting some humour into what's a pretty tough situation otherwise. Remember the website, abc.net.au forward slash rural, and you can look up ABC Rural on Facebook. Have a great weekend. News time now, one o'clock.